In today's episode, we open up the book of Mark now to chapter 8. Jesus performs miracles that reveal his divine power and compassion. He feeds thousands with scarce food and he heals a blind man. He also warns his disciples to beware of the dangerous influence of the Pharisees and Herod. And despite witnessing Jesus' wonders, the disciples still struggle with spiritual blindness, misunderstanding his teachings, yet Jesus patiently ministers to all who need him. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Monday, or sorry, today is Tuesday, November 7th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. I encourage you to learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. We're live this morning, so feel free to call in with your comments or questions to 800-730-2727, or you can email them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also send me a Facebook message. I'll try to get your question or your comment out on the air. But for now, let's welcome our guest for this morning to help us open up Chapter 8. It's the Reverend Kevin Parvis, pastor of Congregation Kaiba Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri. Good morning, Pastor Parvis. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Good morning to you. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. How have things been going for you? Uh, it's been a little while since we've talked. How's God been blessing your ministry? Uh, I mean, God always blesses our ministry. He's blessing us with security right now. I mean, we've gotten, because of what's going on in Gaza we've, uh, and our Jew, the Jewish nature of our ministry, we've gotten some threats and things like that. But God has kept us pretty safe and not a whole lot. I mean, there are some demonstrations here in St. Louis, but not other than that, nothing much going on in that realm. And, of course, we keep praying for the security of Israel and the safety of the innocents that are unfortunately suffering from all of that mess. Oh, yes, of course. Well, yeah, I guess it didn't occur to me that you guys might receive some backlash from that due to the nature of your ministry. Um, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, but hopefully everybody is, uh, is doing well and obviously putting their trust in the Lord through such a troubling time. Yep, amen. All right, well, go ahead and open our time together with a word of prayer, and then let's uh, let's see what has, uh, Jesus has to teach us today. Abba, Father, we thank and praise you for this day, and we ask you, Lord, uh, on this day to uh, keep us safe from all harm, and uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, anoint us anew for understanding of your word and also understanding the events in the world around us and how we might uh, respond to them in the gospel. We pray your blessing upon all that we do, and uh, Father, let us learn from this text today something uh, that we can carry out of our homes and out of our offices and into the world. In Jesus' name, B'Shem Yeshua, amen. Amen. Well, last time we saw Jesus, he was healing a deaf man and then telling the folks to uh, go and uh, not tell others what was going on. At least that's been his M.O., Take us through the couple of things that Jesus has been doing before we get to Jesus feeding the 4,000. I mean, the biggest takeaway, I think, here is that as far as I, you know, as Jesus travels and and he's, and especially in relation to the context of what we're going to be reading today, he is doing a lot of miracles and, uh, you know, healings and uh, teachings and 
we understand that the miracles that he's doing are showing forth God's mercy and grace upon the people whom he uh, heals, the demon-possessed, the deaf. Uh, prior to this, of course, he shows his disciples his power over creation with walking on the water. Uh, and so, it, you know, Jesus is not hiding, even though he's telling folks, you know, don't don't tell anybody what's going on. He's not hiding from those who can see him, his creative, his power over creation, and his uh, and, and the witness of of his uh, ministry to those who are in so so much need. Yeah, I think one of the motivations for him, you know, not wanting people to go around and tell everybody about it is because a couple fold one they would probably focus just on the miracle as opposed to the lesson that the miracle pointed to but also and we've seen this he's already having a hard time moving from place to place and reaching the people he needs to because he has such a great crowd that's following him well and that that's the challenge of course is that why are they following him it's it to get something from this magic man or is it because they are truly? I'm not. One could put the best construction on it and say they're. It's hard to imagine that they honestly believe what's going on yet, because uh, the the crowds just turn on him so easily. So they don't really know who he is. But there is this intrigue about uh, the. You know, everybody likes a good sideshow, and and yet. Uh, um, it seems like so many people just want something from Jesus. And I think this is really interesting that when Jesus, Jesus, of course, sets aside much of his divinity to be, to, to, to be human. And in that humanness, in his humanity, he needs to rest. He gets, he gets weary from all this. And you can, you can, you'll see this again the weariness is not always just in his body. Uh, we'll see this in the reading today. He, he's weary with the uh, the unbelief of the world and this this desire to simply get something for themselves. And it just seems that today, you know, everybody. I had a phone call recently from a, a lady who is alone. Her husband was a pastor, and he's passed away, and she's just so anxious to hear that Jesus is coming soon. And and I think those of us who get weary of the craziness in the world just sort of also sit back and say, come Lord Jesus. And yet uh, we cannot lose the, the faith in the reality that he is coming. It's just not going to be in our time. We don't always get what we want. I always used to tell my kids that the Rolling Stones were right. You can't always oh, yeah. get what, yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. can't always get what you want, right? But, you know, sometimes you want what you get. But we see here that Jesus is going off. He's doing his ministry. Crowds are following him. I mean, they're just absolutely clamoring. It says that he couldn't even enter into some cities. And that is where we find him today with chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have had nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. 
and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, Well, how many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them. He gave them to his disciples to set before the crowds and the people, and they set them before them. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. All right, so stopping there at the end of verse 10. So Jesus knows, and I, by the way, I misread it a little bit. I said that they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I said had had nothing to eat. One suggests right. that they've been not eating at all for three days. I don't think that's the intention. But they have been with Jesus for three days, and he has compassion on them. So to, to piggyback on your point, Jesus is weary. According to his human nature, he needs to rest. He is being pressed by the crowds, and yet... We see here he continues to have compassion on them. Uh, such a beautiful, a beautiful sentiment. And his compassion is is fear for their their well being as well. I mean, if I send them home, they might faint on the way. Uh, and so, yeah, he, that compassion is not just looking out at the faces, but it's it's also caring for their future needs. If he just, it would be so easy to say, "Hey, the party's over. Head on home." Um, but you know that's not what he what he says and does, and he cares for these people. And you know, I love you know in this particular text, and this is Mark, but in the Matthew uh, uh, version of this or, or retelling of this, it's not just four thousand people; those are men, and there are women and children as well. So it's a it's a big crowd. Well, this obviously has parallels to chapter uh, 6 when he did this very same thing, but then it was 5,000 uh, left right. over. I'm sorry, 5,000 people with 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish left over. Um, now, the, the Greek word that's used here for the seven baskets is not the same as the one that's used for the 12 baskets. Um, I'm not sure if we should make too much of that, but it is interesting. We don't, we're not sure what makes them different, but we do see that different words are used, and there's a different context, too. You know, earlier he was really uh, in the Gentile Decapolis, uh, and now he's, you know, this passage, I guess, just brings, it cl brings a little closure to minist Jesus' ministry in Galilee is what I'm trying to say, because he's going to right. be heading into Jerusalem soon. But he's been out taking care of the people. Just interesting, though, that we have two different instances where he feeds people miraculously with bread and fish. What do you make of that? Well, the question that begs to be answered for me, and I've, I've never, you know, I, I, I count myself among Jesus' disciples. And Jesus' disciples are kind of idiots here. I mean, how, they just witnessed him feeding 5,000 right. a little boy's lunch, as CPH likes to say, right? Um and yet here they, they have the same exact situation, not that much longer later, right? And, uh, and they ask the question, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Having already known and seen <laughs> what Jesus can do. It just, I know, it drives uh, you crazy. Yeah, it reminds me, of course, how, how often I receive the, the miraculous work of the Lord 
And yet, in a time of testing, I forget all that, and I cry out, "What are you doing to me? How can how can I get through this?" It's just, uh, it, you know, it, it really bespells our our uh, um, the quickness of our faith to to fade if we're not careful. Absolutely. I mean, we certainly cannot separate ourselves from from this uh, just inability to see Jesus's. Uh, miraculous powers. I mean, we, we overlook it all the time in our own lives. Here, the disciples even had more reason. They had witnessed with their own eyes Jesus already do this, and here we have it again. It does speak a lot about the pervasiveness of sin and how sin doesn't always uh, make sense, and yet here Jesus is not only having compassion on the crowd, but I think he's having compassion on his own people too because he's giving them yet another opportunity to learn the same lesson. Yeah. I have compassion on the crowd, Jesus says, because they've been with me now three days. Well, so this is a huge crowd, as you've already pointed out, but undoubtedly three days worth of spending time with Jesus and the disciples and everything else. These people are all getting to know each other. It's a, it's an interesting, I, I don't know, just the makeup of the crowd is always something that's, that's I guess, made me wonder about. Like, we already mentioned yeah. a little bit about how maybe some are just looking for the miracles, but... um this crowd is following Jesus around. Do you think some of them are included in the previous crowd too? I would argue that they probably are. I mean, again, as you said, this is ministry all in the same part of the world there, uh, in the Decapolis and, and through to Galilee. And if you look at your map, it's not that big of an area. And so, um, yeah, you know, it doesn't take much for people to uh, to schlep uh, this much time and this much distance in the same areas. So, you know, there are probably some. I mean, after the first feeding, of course, Jesus retired, and here he goes away as well. He gets into a boat, and he does the same kind of thing. Uh, and so he leaves the crowd, but the crowd doesn't leave him. Uh, and unfortunately, crowd mentality, if if the crowd sees a miracle and then gets the benefit of that miracle, they just simply become hungry for more. Of course, of course. I mean, the, the the people certainly are wanting to see Jesus do these miracles. It, you know, I will say though, and it's worth saying that some scholars really question the historicity of this second miracle simply because it just seems so unreasonable that the disciples wouldn't expect or understand that this can be taken care of, um, and right. we don't. You know, so I, I don't know. It's just I, I certainly think that it belongs here. I think Jesus often did the same types of teaching and the same types of miracles over and over again in different locations. That's enough to satisfy me. But do you have any other, uh, I guess, better evidence for us to be confident that this is a second a second miracle and not just a, a retelling of the first? Um, yeah, well, a couple of things. One, uh, I mean, we could always fall back on our faith and the inspiration of Scripture and God— God gives us these words. But, I mean, Matthew's, Matthew fleshes this out with enough more detail that convinces me that this is a second feeding. And, you know, those scholars who doubt this particular event and and consider it simply a retelling of some kind of the first event, um, they're, they're a little too rational for my taste because they don't seem to— I mean, look at the character of the disciples all the way through the Gospels. Nothing surprises me about them, and it doesn't surprise me that they've already forgotten because you know, all that they have seen 
and all that Jesus has taught them, and yet they're still running away after the crucifixion and hiding in an upper room, fearful and unbelieving. And so, you know, it, it just goes to tell tell us that the the disciples are, are simply just like us, who without uh, the the, the perse- perseverance of the word, the perseverance of the church, we can easily fall away and, and fall into fear and disbelief and all kinds of things. Uh, so I, I tend to think that, any, you know, the argument that scholars have that they're so surprised that the uh, disciples would forget that this just must be a retelling. They don't, they give the disciples a little too much credit. <laughs> too much credit. They give the disciples too much credit and oftentimes Jesus not enough credit. And there, yeah, and there are yeah. some distinct differences. We have the seven baskets full uh, picked up afterwards. We have the 4,000 instead of the 5,000. But the same message I believe is being promoted here. And that is that, that Jesus has the ability to take care of people's needs. It seemed like in the first one, there was a great emphasis on the disciples' duty and ability from Jesus to take care of them, because he says, you know, you go and take care of them. Here, it just appears that he just does it himself, um, and it's really a demonstration less of the disciples, you know, calling to go out and take care of the people, and more, I think, just an emphasis on the compassion that Jesus has. You know, he goes yeah, from so people being astonished and then goes into now having to take care of people who are following him around. Go ahead. Yeah, but Mark also makes it clear that as Jesus gives thanks and breaks the bread, he gives it to his disciples to hand out to the people. So, you know, God God gives us all that we need, but we're the ones who God calls to go out and take care of people. Oh, yes, I can't deny that at all. Of course, there's also the logistics of it. There are 4,000 men and women and children, so the disciples would have to be pressed into service. But, yeah, I completely agree that, you know, as we talked about when we talked about the feeding of the 5,000, the people themselves who are sitting on the lawn, who are receiving these gifts from God, that large of a number of people, there are certainly many who don't even know where the food's probably coming from, and many of those who— they just see the disciples distributing it. So their experience with Jesus comes from their interaction with the disciples, not directly Jesus. He's not out there handing them out himself. So you certainly make a good point. In fact, it's such a good point. I think we should talk a little bit more about it. Let's talk about how Jesus uses means in order to demonstrate his love for people, and not just in the means of grace, but also through people. Let's, let's talk about that. And I, I think that you make a good point too when you think when you think about this big of a crowd. If you've ever been like on the go to the Life March on the Mall in Washington D.C., or go to even if any any I, I rock concerts are rarely that big, but you, you get stuck in any kind of large crowd. I'm kind of a cheapskate, so I don't buy front row seats. Uh, if you're if you're stuck in a large crowd and and you're following Jesus, honestly, you're really following the crowd. I mean, how many times you've been at a concert where you've seen the headliner and you can't make out his face because it's so far away to the stage, uh, and and that's you're just you're just the people around you, all that's going on, the murmuring, and then of course the disciples themselves. So the reality, the reason I bring this up is because. The world doesn't see Jesus. You know, they're 
we the Christians are two billion people in this world at, at last count. I think it's maybe more than that, thanks thanks to Africa. But um, two billion people surrounding uh, what seven or eight billion other people, and there's this huge crowd of people, but they don't see Jesus. They can see us. They can see those who are mingling among them, and they can receive teaching and information and even goods from from the church but uh we we have to we have to show them that that's the one that we're working with <laughs> absolutely yeah I, and and i think that's something important for us to remember is that when you're out there and you're proclaiming the you know the love of god to your neighbor when you're talking about the church whenever you're talking about the things of the bible whenever you're pointing people to jesus this is the means to which God has chosen. I mean, yes, there's 4,000 here, or actually plenty more with their wives and children. There's 5,000 in the earlier one. But you may not be in front of crowds of thousands of thousands, but the message is still the same. The people often will encounter Jesus first through you, through your actions, through the things you say, through the things that you believe. It's humbling for us and should have been humbling for the disciples too. Uh, perhaps... You know, we see in this case, too, that the disciples don't come to him saying, send them away. He actually is the one who instigates it. He just, it says when when they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him. So I also think we can let the disciples off the hook a little bit because it's not as though they're complaining that Jesus hasn't done anything or needs to send them away. Jesus is the one who recognizes it, calls them, and then just basically tells them, you know, uh, you need to feed them. Now, yes, I know that they question. They go, how are we going to do that in this desolate place? Um, but at the same time, I think that just like we need to be constantly reminded of our duty to feed the people as pastors, as Christians, then uh, they too had to be constantly reminded. Uh, well, anything else before we move on to the next section? Um, and there are, I, I suppose, I don't know if this even bears... Uh, mentioning, to be honest with you, because I think it's a silly thing. But you talk about the scholars' reactions to this. Um, the, verse 7, after having – now, see, this is a little bit different from Matthew. Uh, but in Mark, um, after having given and broken the bread and uh, gave it to the disciples to set, it's, then there's this like, and they had a few small fish. So it looks like a second distribution and um, I remember reading somewhere that one scholar, I don't know who it was, uh, it's, it escapes me now, I'm getting old, but he he basically said that the disciples had this fish and they were holding it back because they wanted to see if Jesus could do the same thing with bread as he did with uh, the last time before they gave up their precious fish. I think that's a little, <laughs> that's a little silly. And again, I think uh, we can be a little too hard on the disciples. But it is an interesting difference in this particular account uh, where they uh, seems to have sort of a second blessing and a second dis distribution. Well, I do think that's a pretty cynical approach, which must be why I like it so much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because right. I, I know my own heart. And so, yes, I think I could easily apply that to the disciples. They're, they're, they're thinking, oh, gosh, we have to feed this crowd now. Okay, here's the bread. <laughs> but again, it still brings up the question of, you know, he divided and multiplied the bread and, and the fish the first time, so certainly he's going to do that this time. But and, and it, move into the next 
hour in the next section. Keep in mind, they had seven baskets full of bread left over. And yet somehow they forget to take bread with them. But that's, that's just <laughs> the next section. That's true right? in verse 14. That's going to be interesting yeah. here in a minute. Uh, I'll tell you what, right. why don't we go ahead and read the uh, next verse, but we'll probably take it up when we come back from our break. So here we go, verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into a boat again, and went to the other side. I'll tell you what, why don't we just take a few minutes as a break. We'll think about this words of Jesus and see what we have to say about him when we get back. Don't go anywhere, folks. Pastor Parvis and I will be back. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back, friends. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, your host, and this is Thy Strong Word. With me this morning is the Reverend Kevin Parvis. He's the pastor of Congregation Kaiva Shalom in St. Louis, Missouri, and we're talking about the Gospel of Mark. Before we head back into the text, I just want to remind you again that if you have any feedback, questions, or comments, you can reach out to me. Email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. And because we're live, you can actually call into the studio if you want, 1-800-730-2727. Any of these methods can get your question or comment out on the air. All right, Pastor, before the break, I had read this next little section. The Pharisees have come and they're arguing with Jesus. They're wanting a sign. And it says to test him. I think that probably is pretty important. But I got to tell you, Jesus, it says he sighed deeply in his spirit. Boy, I can feel that, you know, just sigh. Jesus, I think, is exasperated sometimes by the faithlessness of his own people. Um, mm -hmm. how, what do we make of that? Take us through this part. Well, you know, of course, they're always trying to test him. Um, the Pharisees have often seen Jesus as upsetting the spiritual apple cart of which they have the, uh, the monopoly on. Um, and, you know, in, in some sense, it's almost as if and I, um, that they're not just they're not impressed by even the multiplication of bread, if, assuming they even witnessed it. There's no assumption from the text that they do. But they certainly have, have, have seen and heard of many of Jesus's miracles. And he hasn't made those a secret here. 
and they come in and they basically want something that's more extravagant. They want some sign from heaven, like uh, like Elijah when he sends down fire from heaven and destroys the altar. Um, and and I think Jesus, you know, he recognizes that no amount of, you know, when it comes to the hardness of the heart. No amount of love, compassion, or even miraculous signs can seem to soften that heart. When we have made of ourselves, you know, such an idol of whatever it is that gets in the way of of our relationship with God, um, nothing can argue you into or out of that. And Jesus is not about to, to, to give them this sign because he knows it wouldn't matter anyway. And I think that's the sigh in his spirit is he just, you know, it's like you could almost see his eyes looking up to his father in heaven and saying, why is this, as you put it, such a faithless generation? Um, And he says, surely I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And again, uh, I always look at the parallel accounts and Matthew, in, in Matthew, it says, except for the sign of Jonah. And that's, of course, his three days in the tomb, his death and his resurrection. That's the only sign that will make any difference anyway. And uh, even that, obviously, uh, hasn't, hasn't convinced it. Even the liberal church has denied the resurrection in many cases. So it's, it's uh, it is, it is, you know, this... There's this constant, you know, yeah, you did these things, but show us more. And where does that stop? That never that never will stop because people who are so hardened in their heart and fixed in their unbelief will never be convinced. And that's not, you know, that, that's the, the Holy Spirit is just, we have to recognize that in the world, no matter how much we love people and how much we, I mean, I've got, People, Jewish people who I've been witnessing to well over 20 years. I've come to know them so well. I've got some in my family who I love dearly. And yet we have to just reconcile ourselves with the fact that not everyone is coming to faith. And there will be those who are on Jesus's left hand in the judgment to come. And that's that causes us to look to heaven and sigh in our spirit because it's just so sad. Oh, how true is that? You know, and, and that's something that I believe that we often forget. You know, we, we desperately want, as God wants, all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But I think we forget the reality that there are those who either continue to demand signs or harden their hearts against the message who are not promised then to be with us in eternity. Yeah. And so instead of just lamenting that or being angry with God, we should continue to proclaim but as you pointed out, and as Jesus points out here, there's just part of human nature that wants this proof. And I think what frustrates perhaps Jesus is that it's not as though he hasn't given signs. At least six right. places in the gospel have Jesus's audience asking him to show them a sign. It was a regular occurrence, uh, which is probably yep. why even some of the accounts from Matthew and Mark and Luke, they don't match up exactly because it's probably happened all the time. Um, you, you mentioned Jonah, the sign of Jonah. 
Um, you know, does that mean Jonah's effective preaching as we kind of get from Luke chapter 11? Does that mean uh, the resurrection, which we kind of get from Matthew 12? Uh, you know, what's the sign of Jonah? Uh, lots of things. But I think yeah. ultimately the message here is that Jesus didn't come to satisfy every individual's curiosity or even to pique their interest. He came to do uh, do his duty, to do uh, his sacrifice, his resurrection, these things which bring about, uh, you know, uh, justification for the whole world that everybody has access to. And yet he's sighing deeply in his spirit because we always want just a little bit more, you know, especially in this day, people say, well, if Jesus would have come back today, or if he would have come the first time today, well, then I would believe. And yet that isn't the case. It isn't true. People walked in the presence of Jesus back then, and yet they did not believe. Yeah. I mean, even ones who love Jesus so well, Mary and Martha, if you had been here earlier, my brother wouldn't have died. You know, there's, there's just that, the, not, not the faith that he could raise them, raise Lazarus, but if you could have just been here earlier. And I think we, you know, it bears, it bears mentioning here that Jesus never does a miracle to prove his divinity. That's not the miracle's job. His, the miracles he does is out of compassion and mercy for those who are suffering and he and, and he's working with. He doesn't do these things so that he, he proves, yes, see, now I am. But even those who he's teaching, his disciples, who he, you know, yes, we're looking at this with 2,000 years of uh, glasses on having the time since this time, but um, it seems pretty clear what he's teaching his disciples about himself, but even they don't get it, so... Well, you talked a little bit about how Jesus doesn't do miracles to prove his divinity. I assume that you would agree with the statement, though, that his miracles do prove his divinity. Yeah. Right. But your yeah, your argument is though that he's not doing that just to satisfy people's curiosities. Right. To to proceed. I told you I was the Messiah. Look, let me do this. No. Yeah, he's not concerned about that. Yeah. No. It's it's really care and love for the people who he's healing. Um. And in fact, that's one of the reasons I think we go back to what you said in the first place is, is why he says, don't tell anybody about this. You know, it's not like he he's doing this for you. He's doing this to, to, to minister to your needs right here, right now and in this place. And, you know, you don't need to go and, and shout out to the world what's going on. The world will know. And, the, and, you know, again, we know that the world will know at the end of time and all knees will bow, but unfortunately there are some for whom that will be too late. Well, unfortunately that is the case. Well, let's keep on going because we come to that part that you brought up earlier. Verse 14. Yeah. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they only had one loaf with them in the boat, but Jesus cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? And how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? 
And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? All right, and that's the end of our text for today. So a couple of things. Of course, it brings out, it, it illustrates the, uh, the, the divinity of Jesus and his ability to take care of people. But I think it also answers our question earlier about, you know, is this just a retelling? Well, Jesus certainly didn't think so, right? We have this message from Mark. But he says he sees them arguing over bread. And as is the case with Jesus, it seems like he just sort of picked up on that and said, all right, they're arguing over bread or they're thinking about the bread. This is a good chance for me to talk about the leaven of the Pharisees. He's a master preacher. Um, but yeah, maybe you could flesh out that a little bit. Yeah, what a great sermon illustration, right? And Jesus does that. He does that at Sukkot with the flowing of water. Come to me if you're thirsty, and I'll make water flow from you. Um, yeah, he he loves to use these very physical images of need and teach about how our need is not just physical, but it's spiritual. And, uh, you know, we're so busy worried about the physical needs that we have that we don't give much thought to the, the spiritual needs that we have. Uh, and that's kind of what's going on here, I think, in the boat as they're arguing about bread. Uh, how are they going to split this one loaf between them? And he uses that as a sermon illustration to talk about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And, of course, they seem not to get that either. No, they, they don't really the, understand that, right? Yeah, I mean, you hear the word leaven, and you're going to hear— I mean. Jews have always, you know, ever since the Passover, ever since Exodus 12, leaven is always code for sin, right? Um, but for some reason, the disciples here actually take it pretty literally, <laughs> and they think it's about the bread because they're talking about bread. So Jesus must be referring to bread, uh, when in yeah. fact, he's actually referring to sin so well yeah it's like beware of the leaven of the pharisees and the leaven of herod and i'm surprised they didn't say oh no we got this from you know shlomo we didn't get this from the pharisees shlomo. yeah they missed the point <laughs> yeah it's 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 it's, it's really a, an odd thing that the disciples are so grounded in i mean i mean these are guys who aren't wealthy this is not you know these are not cream of the crop guys who uh who have you know they had a fishing business. They let it go. Uh, so, you know, tax collector, he let it go. Uh, so they're not, you know, they're, they are worried about their physical needs as they follow Jesus. Um, but it seems like they're only worried about their physical needs, and that's kind of the sad thing. Yeah, very much the language he uses is also, I think, designed to, you know, elicit a certain reaction. Because when he mm -hmm. says things like, are your hearts hardened and eyes that don't see and having ears that don't hear? I mean, he's using the language of the Old Testament. He's using the language of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. These things should really stand out to them as as a problem. Yeah, and it really is. The, our, the theme verse for our ministry is uh, Isaiah 6, and Isaiah's call to a people whose eyes are, are, are shut, whose ears are deafened, and who, whose hearts are hard, and— uh, until there is devastation, and yet in the stump, there will be the sprout that is right there before them. Now, I'm not going to argue. I, well, I, I think the disciples 
probably were pretty literate biblically because the oral tradition was pretty strong. Uh, but I don't. I doubt they were all biblical scholars, and they made that connection necessarily. I, I won't make that claim. But I think Jesus is certainly referring to that, that even they, those who have dropped everything and followed him, uh, those who have been the, be- the benefit of his teaching, those who have seen the miracles, even they can be counted sometimes among those who are so hard-hearted. Well, there is a stubbornness that characterizes the Pharisees and the Herodians, and he sees that stubbornness of faith in his own disciples. I mean, you know, he brings it up just like we did. You know, how could you not have seen me give uh, feed 5,000 men plus their wives and children with just a few loaves of bread? How could you have not seen me do that? And yet then just a minute ago, guys, you were all worried about how to feed the people. And even more important, Jesus says, how do you see that all of that even isn't as important as making sure that you are not falling into the same kind of disbelief and unbelief of the Pharisees, the Herodians, the scribes, the Sadducees, and everybody else? So he uses, even though he doesn't feed the people with the bread so that he could later make this point, no, we're told that he has compassion on them, but it doesn't stop him from being very chastising to his disciples. I mean, the things he's saying to them, let's just face it, are rude, but they're only rude in the sense if he were saying them without love, without desire, without being their 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 Messiah, their Savior, their rabbi. He's there because he cares for them, so he has to say some hard truths. And, you know, it doesn't – when someone is uh, wallowing in their need for the physical and refusing to see their need for the spiritual – it does not do you any good to elude. You just have to be blunt. And it's because of love. You know, I I have often been, and I, I think I probably mentioned it on this show before, but there are some who have said, why don't you just shake the dust off your sandals and move on? After 20 years, come on, they're never going to come to faith. And, uh, you know, my whole, my whole response to that is until they tell me they never, never want to talk to me again, I'll keep knocking on their door. But um, but there is uh, – it, it would be easy to just walk away. It's, it's harder to actually stay there and love people. And I think that's something that we need to understand in the church is that it's just – it would be easy for us just to walk away and say, well, you know what? The judgment's coming, and you're going to suffer, and that's your problem, not mine. But that's not what Jesus does, and that certainly is not what he calls us to do either. It illustrates the love and grace that Jesus has. I mean, he had compassion on the people, so he fed them. Here, he has compassion on his disciples, and so he's feeding them with his word, with his truth. He's pointing them in the right direction. And Jesus continues to have compassion on us, but just like he used the the disciples to bring the bread to the people, he uses, uh, well, us, one another, not only pastors in the church, but other church workers, and not only those who work professionally in the church, but even those, uh, all those who are Christians, who, who call upon the name of the Lord, he uses you to go out and proclaim this very same truth to the world. And while it can be uncomfortable, it takes a lot of bravery to go out and stand up for the truth of God, even when people are not getting it. And sometimes, sometimes, like Jesus, we have to, like verse 12, Ah, sigh deeply in our spirit. 
Uh, not because mm-hmm. we're better than folks, but because we can feel that same frustration that Jesus felt. Um, and it also reminds us to not be so stubborn when we hear the word of God. So I, I think there's a lot for us to connect to in these verses that we've been talking about. Yeah, and, I, and one of the saddest things for me is not the ones who never come to faith. That's sad. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. But um, how many of our brothers and sisters who have partaken of the broken bread of the Eucharist, who have come into the fellowship of God through baptism, who have received the sacraments, and yet for some reason, beaten down by the world or whatever it is, distracted, have fallen away from the church and have and and are no longer even partaking, um, and and what is and the danger there of having tasted the the grace of the of the Lord and yet rejected it at the end is just as just as sad and maybe sadder, uh, and I think that you know I, I think in many ways um, and I don't get me wrong I I fall. I fall deeply in love with baptism, and I take great comfort in the promises of baptism. But I also understand that we can then reject. You know, if our hearts become so hard that we fall away from the church, um, and and I think sometimes we don't pay much attention to, you know, if you go on to our website at lcms.org and and look at all the churches and how many are members and how many are in attendance and wonder how many of those are. I mean, what are we doing for those? I think that's the violation of the third commandment, which is essentially what non-attendance in church is, uh, is a sin I don't think we really address as much as we could. And I think we need to have these blunt words like Jesus does. Well, you know, they're only blunt um, in the sense that they are are true and not sugarcoated, but it doesn't mean that they're said outside of love. Uh, you no. know, when I have to discipline my children, um, sometimes it calls for a very roundabout approach, and sometimes, especially if it's urgent, it requires maybe even a little raised voice, right? That uh-huh. is disciplining your children. God disciplines us. And, and we have now, you know, these these meals, this breaking of the bread, I don't know that it has direct connection to the Lord's Supper, but boy, it sure gives us images of the Lord's Supper, of breaking yeah. the bread, distributing them to the people. And, you know, I, I think when we think about what God offers through uh, through the preaching of his word and through his blessed sacrament, I think we have to remember that, you know, these things are supposed to be faith-nourishing meal, meals. You know, they're supposed to bolster our faith. They're not designed as narcotics just to make us feel good or to, you know, elicit a certain emotion. These things are the gifts of God through which he grows our faith. And I think we, we look at churches, too many people look at church, they look at worship, they even look at the Lord's Supper and they say, well, I want to make sure I do all these things so that I feel a certain way when I leave which is really uh, ignoring the deeper need, which is we have to be fed. You know, not every meal that my wife or I make for our family is like this amazing culinary event, but hopefully all of them continue to feed our bodies so that we can continue to do God's will. The same thing with his, with his worship. You know, the Lord's Supper is this meal, again, not a narcotic. The, the, the words of Christ that, that save us from our sins are to nourish us, and sometimes they can be kind of direct. 
And so when we talk about hardened hearts and having eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear, Jesus reminds them of what he's able to do through these, well, to them would be miraculous events, but most of the people out in those crowds, they would have never even really known that it was a miracle. They just see people distributing bread. To them, it's just boring bread that's feeding their body. They don't even recognize the miracle behind it. And yet, Jesus is, out of his compassion, provides it to them anyway. And they, how easy it is to forget if all you take it as physical, because you know you're going to be hungry again. (laughs) Right, right. Well, as we look back on our texts, we've covered a couple of things, right? He feeds the 4,000. The Pharisees demand a sign. The leaven of the Pharisees then is what Jesus warns them against. And it's not in our text for today, but it's very fascinating because tomorrow when we pick back up, he's going to be encountering a blind man. So I just wanted to bring that up in advance, not to take anything away from our guest next time, but it's interesting how he, Jesus, the very next thing is he has an opportunity to bring sight to a blind man in the midst of his disciples who for are very much still spiritually blind. Uh, yeah. I, 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 all of it, all of this, of course, is tying together. And, and again, I think for us in the church in the 21st century, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod is a very real thing. I mean, what is it? What is the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? It is, they're teaching, you know, Jesus often says, you know, they sit in the seat of Moses, so do what they say, but not what they do. That was in our text recently. But um, how insidious are the things that we hear that and, and that make their way and grow within us if we don't, if we're not aware that these are, are lies, lies of Satan very often. Um, and, you know, and that's, in this day and age with fake news and all the social media stuff, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod is all over the place. And whatever you do, beware, because it can get inside of you and grow into, into total unbelief. Absolutely. The, the, the concept of leaven, and you, know, you could probably do better than I could to explain you know, the, 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 how they would have seen this, but that takes us all the way back to the Passover, when they were to remove from their midst all the leaven, uh, it, Jesus is continuing that theme, but it's more, it's less literal and more spiritual. But we. Yeah, it's, it's not much the, not, not just, I mean, leaven is, again, code for sin. And sin, the sin of the Pharisees, the sin of Herod, but that all that goes with it, the teaching, the words, the semantics, I mean, the rhetoric of our world today that is doing so much to desensitize Christians to uh, the the issues that are socially things that the world is desperately trying to get us to accept that we cannot because of the Word of God. That still continues to be the struggle from Christians today is, you know, yep. we we don't just have a little bit of leaven sprinkled in. We, we are feasting on spoonfuls of it, and we have yep. to be careful. You know, we shouldn't, we should have eyes that see and ears that hear. We should, of course, submit to God's will. And he makes it easy, though. He, you know, he's patient with us. He has compassion on us. You know, we, we, we seek forgiveness of our sins. He freely gives it. 
and, and he continues to build us up. But, you know, we have to make ourselves available to his word. We have to make ourselves available to his sacrament when they're offered so that we can receive these great benefits. Well, we're toward the end of our program, brother. I'm going to give you the last few minutes here. Just anything else you want to say before we go? Well, all I can say is that's why regular church attendance is so important because it helps us gather together and uh, resist the leaven. So uh, thank you for the the hour, and it's been a blessing, and I look forward to uh, the next time we get together. Thank you, brother. Folks, that's been the Kevin, uh, the Reverend Kevin Parvis. He's the Kevin. He's the pastor, though, of (laughs) Congregation Kaiba Shalom in St. Louis. Yeah, thanks again, brother, for being on the show. Good to talk to you. Blessings. Bye-bye. Folks, tomorrow we are going to finish up Chapter 8, wherein blindness gives way to sight as Jesus restores a man's vision. And then when Peter correctly confesses Jesus to be the Christ, Jesus then foretells of his impending suffering and death before promising some of the disciples that, you know, they would see the kingdom of God come in power. And then through miraculous healing, he points uh, to these prophetic revelations, and Jesus reveals his divine nature, prepares his followers. He's going to prepare us, too, through the same text, so join us for it. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word.